We had two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, five sheets of high-powered blotter acid, a salt shaker half full of cocaine, a whole galaxy of multicolored uppers, downers, screamers, laughers, also a quarter tequila, quarter rum, case of beer, pint of raw ether, two dozen amyl. Hello and welcome, welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen, and it's a podcast where we talk about movies, specifically a movie that one of us hasn't seen before. Uh, this is episode number 18, uh, and the movie in question is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Joining me this week, I have AJ. How's it going? Good, good. And uh, Keith. Hey. Hey. So, all right, uh, we'll get right to it. Keith, you had never seen this movie before, correct? Uh, apparently I've never seen it sober, which is a <laughs> giant qualifier for this movie. That's okay. The people that made and wrote this movie weren't sober either, so you don't really have to worry a whole lot. <laughs> I'm not sure they've seen it sober. So this is uh, a very interesting movie. Um, it is it is based on a novel um, which was actually originally published as two a two part article in Rolling Stone by Hunter S. Thompson. Now. I'm familiar with Hunter S. Thompson as a writer, but I, I haven't read uh, a lot of his work. Um, I just know of him. But uh, were either of you familiar with Hunter S. Thompson in general? Yes. The name, I, again, I've heard the name. I I haven't read any of his work. Okay. So so this is supposed to be semi-autobiographical, um, uh, based on uh, uh, some trips to to Las Vegas um, from L.A. by Hunter S. Thompson and his lawyer. Um, I believe his lawyer's name was Acosta. And um, so it's semi-autobiographical, but, you know, how much of it can you really take as truth given what Hunter S. Thompson did, which was all the drugs that he could find? Um, that was sort of his thing. He, he was a product of the 60s. Uh, gonzo journalism was his big thing. And... Um, so the character of Raul Duke, Johnny Depp, is supposed to be Hunter S. Thompson. And in fact, um, Hunter S. Thompson was, he didn't write the screenplay, but he obviously he wrote the novel. And he had a lot of input um, in the filmmaking process. This is kind of an interesting grouping of, uh, of artists. So cast-wise, this movie's got a lot of people in it. Um, most notably, yeah, it you've got Johnny Depp um, playing Raul Duke, uh, who does... He's a cartoon character in this movie, like through and through. But he needs to be. That's the that is the character. Um, I did think it was funny that uh, Hunter S. Thompson said, uh, you know, they worked together to to come up with the mannerisms and the character. And Hunter S. Thompson said, if he ever saw somebody acting like that in real life, he uh, he. Let me see if I can find the the quote because I just thought it was funny. But um, what did you think about? Johnny Depp in this movie, AJ. Brilliant, perfect, spot on. I'd never seen the film before. I have read previously, decade ago, Fear and Loathing. Uh, I've read one or two other pieces of uh, Hunter S. Thompson's and you know passing. I, I really, what I remember from the book, this was uh, wonderfully done. Uh, it is as much of a trip as I remember the book being. And I thought that there probably, at the time, was no one better to have played 
that character. And I don't know of anyone today that could have done a better job, you know, thinking about who else I would try to cast if they were to redo it. So perfect that's, is kind of just sums it up. Yeah, that's pretty good. Keith, what did you think of Johnny Depp? Johnny Depp, I think he really nailed the um, the nuance of being that messed up. <laughs> um, that's a good way to put it. it unless, you, unless you've actually been there, you, you can't really know. And I've... I've peeked in the door, but I never walked through the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I I will say right now that I have never uh, I've never imbibed in a whole lot of you know beyond drinking uh, and, and one or two small things, but no nowhere near any of the stuff that they were doing in this movie. Um, but I have to imagine <clears throat> that a uh, a psychedelic trip has got to feel a lot like what this movie looked like. <laughs> so here's some interesting casting choices. So. This book was, um, the, the articles were published in 1971 in Rolling Stone, and then the next year they uh, put them together and made it into a novel. Um, so 1972. And pretty much since the late 70s, people have been trying to get this movie made. Um, at one point, Scorsese was working on it. Uh, I think Oliver Stone was working on it. Originally, they wanted Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando to play Raul Duke and Dr. Gonzo. Um, that would have been wrong. It would have been very different for certain. <laughs> now, have. eventually they became too old, um, and uh, then it was Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi were were considered. Um, I could see that more. I could see that more. Belushi would have been very interesting as Dr. Gonzo, but then he passed away, so yeah. that fell apart. John Malkovich was apparently considered at one point for Raul Duke. I'm not sure how that would have worked, although Malkovich does have that crazy in him. But it's a different. It's a different kind of crazy that he can portray. He's so I don't know. I, it's hard. It, 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 I think he would have come off as less cartoon character and more actually messed up person. <laughs> Very true. Um, John Cusack was almost cast at one point, which sounds very odd. Although apparently, according to Wikipedia, how much you want to believe that um, Cusack actually directed a a stage version of this with his brother um, as the character of Raul Duke so um but Hunter S. Thompson himself met Johnny Depp and he was convinced no one else could play him so he kind of handpicked uh Depp to be that character and he really does embody it and then on top of that you have Benicio Del Toro doing Dr. Gonzo and going full-on method actor I mean he put on 40 pounds for the movie um yeah I I definitely noticed that you know because this came out in 98 I believe it was so you're looking at three years after um <clears throat> Pardon me. Three years after uh, the Usual Suspects, and Del Toro was very pretty thin in Usual Suspects. He definitely put on a bunch of weight, grew that hair out. Um, he was he was something else in this movie. Uh, he's not a likable character at all. Doctor Gonzo is a pretty terrible person um, <laughs> on the whole. Yeah, uh, and especially you know towards the end of the movie. Um, I mean, there's a lot of scenes of his that are are uncomfortable. But that scene in the diner is really rough. Um, and that's one where uh, Del Toro and the way that he mumbles and mutters and kind of chews his own words, I think, makes that more unsettling. And that's where I could see Definitely Marlon. Definitely more sinister. Yeah. And that's where I could see Marlon Brando doing that character. He could have done that scene really well. I'm not sure how well a Marlon Brando in the 70s would have been able to portray some of the other parts of it but that 
that aspect of the character, I think he could have nailed. Um, it's very interesting, but definitely, um, I mean, Johnny Depp was great. Now, uh, there was another version of Hunter S. Thompson novel. I don't know if it was based on this. I think it might have been called Where the Buffalo Roam in 1980, and that actually had Bill Murray playing uh, the lead character. They also did the Rum Diaries, again, with Johnny Depp. That was, yeah, that was quite a few years after this. There was talk of that going on for quite a while, and they finally did make it. I think it was like 2011. Um, but then if you look at the rest of the cast in this movie, it's incredible the, the number of people that just pop up for a scene or two. You know, Gary Busey, Penn Jillette. Yep, Gary Busey, Penn Jillette. You got Tobey Maguire, a really young Tobey Maguire. Um, and I thought it was funny. It, there's a pickup shot. I think it's when um, Dr. Gonzo is before he starts waving the gun around. And it looks odd because Tobey Maguire, it was a pickup shot they had to do later. And Tobey Maguire came back and he wouldn't shave his head again to wear the wig. So they had to just try to make it work. Um, so it really looks off, but with the way the movie shot, you, if you didn't know that ahead of time, you probably wouldn't even notice it. Um, but, uh, the, the, even these small roles, like the car rental agent in LA was Larry Cedar, who I remember, uh, I remember him from Mark, when I was a kid in uh, square one TV. I don't know Mark if Hammond is the magazine reporter. Yep, Mark Harmon. Yep, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Christina Ricci. We've got Cameron Diaz. I mean, this, this was an amazing cast now, even though a lot of them are small parts yeah they're little um, you know quick quick on and off like Cameron Diaz is in one one scene and then I think one flashback shot uh if that you know you had Richard Reels in one one shot in the dune buggy uh Christina you had Ricci. Lyle Lovett you've got Flea I mean yeah. it, it just yep. kind of kept going on and on you're like oh the, the entire thing is people I recognize even if I don't know them yep Vern Troyer yeah <laughs> I, 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 kept, I kept getting that feeling like there was somebody in the scene that I recognized, but I couldn't place who they were because the movie felt so much like being <laughs> messed up back in the day. Uh, a couple of others, uh, Christopher Maloney um, from Law & Order SVU fame uh, as Sven, um, who I, I, this was such a such a cool role, even if it was so small. Michael Jeter was the um, Dr. Bloomquist during the... Uh, um, narcotics presentation um michael jeter is great he was he was great yeah. in everything he would do um harry dean stanton as the judge like who literally yeah you would you wouldn't even notice it was him if you weren't paying attention like ellen barkin was the waitress in the diner i did i had no idea until the the credits start rolling that was ellen barkin like there's a lot and and hunter s thompson yeah <laughs> for one quick shot uh, which is actually one of my favorite moments in the entire movie. Which one was that? Uh, it's where he has the flashback to the 60s and Jefferson Airplane is playing in the background. Oh, um, oh, yeah, yeah. And, there's uh, me. He, he huh. actually says this. Huh. Yeah, this is this, he actually says this, and I quote this one all the time. There I was. Mother of God, there I am. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh. But there's just the cast. The cast was great. It was it was a good bit of casting. There it didn't feel like stunt casting to have, you know, Penn Jillette or Mark Harmon or any of these people kind of showing up as these little one-off parts, but the whole movie has to be carried by Depp and Del Toro. And while Del Toro is, I would say uncomfortable at times, he's phenomenal as well. Um, mm. And Johnny Depp just chews the scenery left and right, which is, you need that in this movie because there is no, there is no plot. 
there is no real story to tell, which is why it's a difficult uh, and somewhat inaccessible movie to um, a lot of people. Um, well, it's really just you know the mad ramblings and and follow along of one and a half people as they're high off their rocker in Vegas. Yeah, and and yes, I mean you kind of need a ton of cameos, or otherwise it would kind of blend too much in the background. I mean things are so trippy. I mean mm-hmm. I think of the casino esque moment when it's kind of like the casino in the fair and like. You're, you're you're walking through and like that's why you have to be able to pick up some some faces because it's just too bizarre almost oh yeah you just it, it is beyond reality and trying to comprehend the shot it absolutely you know, what is showing you <laughs> absolutely and and having those recognizable faces kind of almost like um you know mile markers that you can sort of oh hey that's Mark Harmon exactly you know? even yeah. even if it's somebody that you don't realize you recognize like a like a Michael Jeter or Christopher Maloney you don't know why you recognize them um, but you do uh, I mean that whole scene in the Flamingo where um, Christopher Maloney is Sven and he's arguing with the the police chief from Michigan and all that like the the police chief is somebody that you've seen before that's Troy <laughs> um, what is his name Troy Evans who I remember from Ace Ventura Pet Detective. But, like, you recognize these character actors, and they had just a ton of them all throughout. Um, and for some reason, I don't know why, that scene with with the, with the Sven and the, and the police chief there, that just seemed like the most coherent scene in the movie. <laughs> well, because it's pretty simple. It's just, you know, the police, the, the police guy getting pissed off and... Sven kind of getting his, you know, getting to to be the one in power for once. And so that one was pretty straightforward. But this movie is, this movie, this book, the story, it's all about kind of playing with your head. And Terry Gilliam is the perfect director for this material because that dude is just wired different than most people. And I kind of want to talk about him here in a minute. I want to talk a little bit more about the cast and I want to come back to Terry Gilliam because I have quite a few things to say about him. But I mean, it, you know, little things like Gary Busey as the highway patrolman, like (laughs) that's great. You know, and he even, he even ad libbed the line, uh, you know, can I get a kiss? (laughs) Like that just weird, uncomfortable thing. But you know, he was great in that small little role. Um, But with the way this movie was done, I couldn't tell that that line was ad libbed. Right. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no, and and you are not wrong. Um, no, it's hard to hear through the crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's just and that's just Gary Busey talking about. <laughs> just Gary being himself. <laughs> so, okay, Terry Gilliam. Now, I'm an admitted Terry Gilliam fan. I've liked him uh, forever, partly because when I was pretty young, my dad showed me the movie Brazil, um, and it was weird and way out there and I kind of fell in love with just this kind of absurdist madcap craziness but Terry Gilliam um are you guys both familiar with him yeah I know most... particular... I, I've heard the name I can't place it I place in my mind I immediately go to Monty Python okay um, yeah you know his okay, involvement yep, with, yep, with now, that work okay, that yeah. clicked. so so Terry Gilliam is one of the pythons he was actually the he was the token yank um, in the Python troop, he's from. He was okay. born in Minnesota. Um, joined Monty Python. 
he was responsible for all of the animation in Monty Python, all that kind of cutout style animation was all Terry Gilliam. Um, and he did, you know, small things in front of the screen, but he was mostly the animation and doing some writing. Um, but as a director, he, you know, branched out. He was co-director for Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That was him and Terry Jones uh, as the Python crew. But he really kind of got his start directing um, shortly after that. He did a, a adaptation of Jabberwocky. Um, and then Time Bandits was his first kind of pretty well-known movie, um, which is a fun one. But he, he is known for just, I mean, if you ever look at the animation in Monty Python, that stuff is crazy. And it's just very, like, <laughs> absurdist or... Uh, kind of out there like very very strange stuff the dude's brain just doesn't work the way the rest of us do he sees things very differently which is why his his vision his visual style works so well for this material because he didn't have to translate no he didn't really have to (laughs) and you know it's interesting because here's some of the other movies that he did so time bandits um he did uh Parts of Meaning of Life, Brazil, which I mentioned before. And if you haven't seen that before, do yourself a favor and go watch that movie because it's really, really, really good. It is also very confusing. Um, I will I will warn you of that now, but it's worth watching. I'm probably going to try and get it on the show at some point, but it's a tough one to find because I don't think it's streaming anywhere. Um, he did The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, uh, which is great. The Fisher King with Robin Williams and... Uh, um, uh, Jeff Daniels? No, not Jeff Daniels. Wow, why can't I think of his name? Um, Bridges. Uh, One of the Jeffs. Yeah, Twelve Monkeys was Terry Gilliam, um, which was really really good. Fear and Loathing. Uh, recently, he did um, the Zero Theorem, which wasn't very widely done or widely put out there. And he his most recent movie is called The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. And what's interesting about that is oh. Okay, Adam Driver and... So that's got a cool story to itself because my favorite Terry Gilliam film is still Brazil, but my favorite movie or documentary involving Terry Gilliam is called Lost in La Mancha, and it came out in, I think, 02, and it's about the making of The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which, you'll note, just came out in 2018. He's been trying to make that movie for almost 20 years, Um, And Lost in La Mancha is such a brilliant documentary about trying to make a movie in a labor of love and everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Um, So that's another one I highly recommend. If you're into filmmaking at all, watch that because it's really, really good. But um, yeah, I I have yet to see a movie of Terry Gilliam's that I didn't like. Now, there are varying degrees of how much I like them. You know, I really liked Fear and Loathing, Twelve Monkeys. I enjoyed The Fisher King, I think is really good. The Brothers Grimm was another one he did that uh, I liked a lot, but um, definitely not as much as some of the other ones. He also did, uh, Heath Ledger's last movie was The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. That was a Terry Gilliam movie. But he's known for these kind of weird out there things, and he tends to take on projects that um, are difficult to translate and make into a movie, and he has grand wonderful ideas that he doesn't get the funding for and ends up going over budget his movies don't make a ton of money this movie did not make any money at all but it's not a like i said earlier it's not an accessible movie um 
So, you know, that, that goes a long way. But he he's such an interesting director visually. And this movie really kind of showed some of that with the way that he would mess with color saturation and the Dutch angles, but also... Um, there's a there's a pretty good breakdown that Cinefix on YouTube did of this uh, of this movie called What's the Difference where they compare it to the book. But one of the things they talked about in that, and you notice it, is when they go into the circus um, casino, which they couldn't call it Circus Circus, um, which was supposed to be because the the Circus Circus Casino in Las Vegas was like, no, you can't use our name. They weren't allowing it. <laughs> I wonder why. Yeah, I can't imagine. So they had to call it something different, but. Um, when they went in there, so as they're walking up to it, is the it's, that's the scene where they are huffing the ether and then they can't walk. Um, mm. So they shot that at this really low angle, kind of looking up, but it's also a wide shot, and so it's almost voyeuristic, and you can kind of see what's going on, and it it mimics what he's talking about, where you know, oh, you can you all this crazy stuff's happening to, and you can kind of watch it happening. But then as soon as they go inside. It's just a barrage of crazy imagery, and they shot it in such a way that there's no depth of field, so you can never tell how far away something is from the camera, because there's no, like, you don't have what's close to the camera in focus and then what's behind it out of focus or vice versa. It's just all in focus, and it really is trippy, and that's... You know, that's that, those are the kinds that. of things. Yeah, those are the Throwing kinds of things. Throwing and meat cleavers at, <laughs> at carny booths. I'm like, <laughs> you know, and yeah, this is, what's this funny is, is the imagery, according to what I my research, the imagery in that circus uh, area is almost all straight out of the book, except for the trapeze, that trapeze act with the baby uh, being birthed and the umbilical cord cut and all that. That's all Terry Gilliam, um, which I kind of <laughs> I don't know if he should be proud of that or <laughs> he definitely got a WTF out of me for that. So if that's what he was going for. I, well, I'm going to just point sir. out you nailed that, it. again that it blends perfectly. And I think it really relates like Hunter S. Thompson was able to get the crazy onto the page in as accessible a format as possible, at least for the time. And the translation to the screen, uh, I think, is amazing. I mean, oh, absolutely. whether that is, uh, yeah, it, it, it blends so well with WTF and just trying to keep up and understand what's going on. I, <laughs> yeah, uh, it, yeah. In, in my notes here, I, I, I don't really think I actually took any notes. I just wrote down WTF. <laughs> it looks like about 17 times before I just put down the paper and sat back watching the movie. It was so. It was out there. It 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 was kind of a hard watch for me. Yeah. Well. Okay. So here's a good quote from from Gilliam. So Terry Gilliam said during production that it was his intention to make the movie feel like a drug trip from beginning to end. He said in an interview, "We started out full speed and it's just woo. The drugs kick in. You're on speed. You get the buzz. It's crazy. It's outrageous. And the carpet's moving and everybody's laughing and having a great time. Like that's the that was what he was going for. You know, it's it's an ugly nightmare." He yeah. captured that. He did. He captured and, that very well. <laughs> and there was more than a few times where he definitely started to capture the come down too. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh yeah. Yeah, and and you know, just use of like weird lensing and long 
long shots where you wouldn't normally have a, a long shot or a wide shot and the Dutch angles and the up and down and getting right up close on camera and just making you feel uncomfortable. Like all of that is very Terry Gilliam. He's good at kind of this, this odd, uncomfortable visual style, yet it serves a purpose. Um, it's an ugly nightmare and there's no escape is a line is a quote from him. And that I think is like perfect. Um, you know, and then they did, you know, some some cool things with like morphing people's faces or the the carpet actually moving and kind of crawling up somebody somebody's <laughs> leg or disjoining the audio. Oh yeah, the the carpet crawling up the guy's leg while he's talking about what happened to somebody in a rather horrific manner. Right. You know, and I mean all of that, you know, taking the audio and speeding it up or slowing it down or or disjoining it from like all of these are are effects to portray the way these guys are feeling going through, you know, an LSD trip or, uh, you know, whatever it is, the ether, all of that, like ether binge, animals. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, it, like I say, never done it myself. Gotta imagine it feels somewhat like that. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just entertaining uh, to say the least. I find it entertaining anyway. But you have to be in the right mindset for it, and I think that's where it's. It's not an easily accessible thing. It's not, you know, I'm not going to take uh, just somebody off the street and sit them down and say, all right, we're going to watch Fear and Loathing and you're going to love it because you're not. <laughs> um, it it reminds me a bit. There's a book that I read in college. It's a novel called The Illuminatus Trilogy. Uh, it was written around the same time. Um, and it's got a lot of um, a lot of talk of, you know, LSD and drug trips. And it's a weird sci fi book. And to date, the only person that I have met that uh, that I have recommended the book to or had the book recommended to that liked it was the person who recommended it to me. Every person I've told it about has hated it. Um, mm. and, uh, and I kind of feel like this movie sort of fits in that same vein. Like, I have friends of mine that love this movie. I have friends of mine that I know would not enjoy it. Uh, it sounds like, Keith, you were you're pretty... You were kind of it was, weirded out it by was, it. It's kind of jarring, and it it kind of took me back in back to a a, a point in my life where this would have been a big part of my life, <laughs> and uh, I'm not there anymore. So it was a little jarring, but I'm not going to say that I wasted my time watching this movie. But it was I don't think I'm ever going to seek out watching this movie again. Well, that's fair. I mean, another quote from Terry Gilliam says, you know. I want it to be seen as one of the great movies of all time and one of the most hated movies of all time. Like, that's what he was going for. He wanted there to be, you know, just... Yeah, I, th I think he's kind of getting both of those from me. And I can see that. I mean, I think, had you seen this movie when you were 17, 18, 19 years old, when it came out, you're going to have a very different experience watching this. Now, I didn't see it then, but I saw it a few years later. And again, I really enjoy, you know, the this kind of like, hey, let's explore a little bit and kind of see what's weird and what isn't. So for me, that works. Um, but Watch, I can... Watching this movie 22 years old and completely pickled is, compl is a totally <laughs> different experience than watching it 36-year-old and sober having to work later in the day. Right. So. It's very, very fair, true. Fair enough. Yeah. It's... Woo. Um, you know, another strong point of this movie was music. So there isn't really yeah. a score, but there's a lot of music in it. Now, one song that was featured prominently in the book <laughs> that they couldn't do in the movie was Sympathy for the Devil. 
they couldn't afford it. It was going to be like half the music budget to get that one song. Um, but they did have a lot of good stuff. I mean, it's a, all 60s and 70s uh, music of that era. You got you know Bob Dylan. You've got uh, Jefferson Airplane and two different songs by them. They had some Tom Jones which and Frank Sinatra, which if you're in Vegas, if your movie is set in Vegas, you are contractually obligated to play Tom Jones and or Frank Sinatra. <laughs> you have I'm to. Surprised. Again, no Elvis because they couldn't afford it, probably. No, of course not. We, we ran into that with um, Bubba Hotep a few weeks back where they had all sorts of Elvis mentions but never, never any of his music because they couldn't afford it. Now, I'm going to just go off on a small tangent here. Okay. And I, I, I will preface this with I've never been a huge Elvis music fan. Respect the work he did. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are some things that like I can listen to and enjoy, but I, I've never been one of those rabid fans, and I, I've met them. Um, I and I know that like there was plenty of, of drugs at the end, <laughs> um, you know, towards the end for him. Mm-hmm. I just I, I never really felt like you heard that in his music. Now I could be dead wrong. I just think of like the Beatles. Yeah, no, you're you're not wrong, and I think that uh, to an extent, that wasn't Elvis's type of music either. Though, if you look at like the Beatles transitioned from that sort of pop rock onto kind of more trippy and um, hippie style influenced things, because um, there's definitely music in this that isn't you know your Jefferson Airplanes or your Three Dog Nights or your Bob Dylan's. They've got you know Perry Como. Um, you've got, uh, like I said, Tom Jones, um, they had, they opened it with, um, who was it? The Lennon sisters, uh, version of my favorite things. Like that's the music that opened the movie. Um, there was, uh, there was some music that they didn't, um, they didn't have on, they had a soundtrack that came out. Um, but they had, uh, you know, quite a bit of music that didn't make it onto the soundtrack, like Jumpin' Jack Flash at the end, um, Oh, what were some other ones? Um, Debbie Reynolds. And they actually had, they got Debbie uh, Reynolds. So there's a scene with a Debbie Reynolds concert, and there's a voice that's supposed to be Debbie Reynolds singing, and it actually is Debbie Reynolds because Terry Gilliam was friends with Carrie Fisher, who's Debbie Reynolds' daughter. So he was able to get her for that uh, little cameo, which I thought was kind of cool. But the the music overall in this movie was was really, really well put together. and it fit the the moments a lot. Um, it did a did a good job with that. I mean, th- I think probably for me the most memorable musical moment is um, the whole scene with the bathtub and uh, White Rabbit. <laughs> I love that song. Amazing it's a great song. song, and that's such a great moment in the movie. And I always remember it because he's he's lining him up, lining him up, and just hucks that that uh, grapefruit <laughs> at him so hard. And runs out of the room. Great on his noggin. It does. Oh god, it's so great. Uh, now there, there were a lot of uh, good moments of dialogue in this movie. Um, well, I should say monologue because almost all of the movie is told <laughs> through voiceover flashback inside Raul Duke's brain. But um, I did catch uh, quite a few funny things, and uh, I might have to pepper him on through here. Um, but uh, I think in that, or did I say that? Yeah, no, that was great. <laughs> I love that moment where he's he's slowly matching up his actual talking with the inner monologue. Yeah, that whole beginning scene in the desert uh, in the car uh, really sets the stage for what this movie is going to be. 
because immediately you you don't trust that the narrator is telling you the truth just because he's already whacked out of his head. Right. So you kind of you can't be surprised throughout the rest of the movie with the the craziness that goes on because they started you off with that. I mean, it started off with this is the first line in the movie. Once they so the movie actually opens with that little montage of like um, you know war imagery and, and images and all that stuff with my favorite things playing, um, and then this is the first thing you hear out of Johnny Depp. We were somewhere around Barstow, on the edge of the desert, when the drugs began to take hold. And it's like, okay, we're we're set. We're ready for it. Um, yeah. And as far as the war imagery thing, there was something that I noticed right at the very end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Throughout the whole movie, all the war imagery seems to be of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. But there's one of those TV screens at the end when they're circling around him in that trashed cube area while he's typing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. you see an M1 Abrams in the tent, in the desert. And then Desert Camouflage Machine Gunner, and that's it, very clearly uh, Desert Storm, you know. Um, yeah, it could have been. I mean, I think... Because that was pre... I mean, this was done in the 90s, so there's no way it's, it's during this current... No. Sustained no, war of... Yeah, I'm not going to get into that. That's too much. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's very clearly um, the, the technology, you know of the tank and and the camouflage used it's very it's very clearly uh desert storm and it just seemed like that was a nice little pop in at the end that this this is your new vietnam kind of thing and it very well could have been that was why you know that was put in there i'm sure um you know nothing like that gets done accidentally so yeah part of it i think will go back to the fact that when so so depp and thompson actually did become friends. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Uh, like De- Depp paid a ton of money, like at his funeral, like they knew each other, um, you know? Uh, and so when you have someone that was as political as Hunter S. Thompson, uh, I could only imagine that that had to be intended and really just kind of some commentary on the fact that things haven't changed, that we are still doing exactly what, that generation was screaming, shouting, fighting against, and you know that that is why it was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, it's this movie really kind of boils down to if you like this movie or not depends on your mood and um, kind of your thought processes. There's one quote here I want to read because this is from. You know the the critical reviews of this movie were pretty wishy washy. They were they were pretty mixed. Some people enjoyed it, some people didn't. But this, I think, is probably the best summation of what this movie is. And it was, Fear and Loathing is really a Rorschach test of a movie. Some people will see a god awful mess rendered inaccessible by the stumbling handheld camera and Depp's nearly incomprehensible narration. Others will see a freewheeling comedy, a thinking person's Cheech and Chong film. It all depends on your mood, your expectations, and your state of mind. For the record, I was stone sober and basically enjoyed myself. Um, I think that kind of encapsulates it in a nutshell. I I do look at it kind of as almost a thinking man's Cheech and Chong. That's a great way to put it because it's it, it it is insane, it is crazy, but at the same time, there's a there's a certain clarity to it um, that you can get if you can kind of see past uh, some of the crazy. 
I, I wasn't trying too hard to to dissect the movie as I watched it. I was just trying to I was just trying to keep up. <laughs> and and really that's and from from past experience, I, I remember that when you're that messed up, you that that's all you can do is you just try to keep up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I mean, I, like, well, again, like I said, I never got messed up to that degree, but I, I've had moments where I was definitely not in control of the situation and it felt a lot like that. So for so, you, yeah. So for you, I'm kind of taking it as, you know, it's almost drudging up some memories that maybe you don't want to remember. Or a some... lot of not so proud moments, but um, at the same time, you can't forget where you came from. True. So um it, it's definitely a hey have fun hang on you're not getting out of here with clean pants yeah you know and there's some there's some wonderful moments too like and and contradictory moments like uh there was this one i want to play this i want you to understand that this man at the wheel is my attorney he's not just some dingbat i found on the strip man. you know so he's he's already kind of saying some things and then this was sort of the the next line he says contradicts itself halfway through and it again it really sets you up for what what you're going to experience are you prejudiced hell no <laughs> i didn't think so because in spite of his race this man is extremely valuable to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah i noticed that a few times you know and there are some great quotes that i use in uh all the time um i say this i don't say this exact quote word for word but i use this line a lot which is as your attorney, I advise you to rent a very fast car with no top. I do that to friends of mine all the time. Like, as your attorney in this matter, I advise and then just tell them something completely crazy. I can confirm this. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's a there's a case there. That's kind of the, the type of line I was talking about earlier where I could see Marlon Brando playing the character. Because if you notice, I mean, Del Toro's pretty much chewing the words up as they're coming out of his mouth. You know, he's mumbling and muttering through his lines. Uh, through most of this movie, which is sort of a trademark of his anyway. But, um, you know, when you couple that with Johnny Depp pretty much having a cigarette holder in his mouth the entirety of the movie, um, it can make the, the dialogue a little tough um, tough to follow. And I was really impressed that once his cigarette broke, it stayed broke in the same spot until he smoked down that cigarette. Yeah, no, there, there was actually some pretty good continuity going on for as crazy as this movie was. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I also like this. The mind recoils in horror. <laughs> when he's, oh, here's the longer version of it where he's explaining ether. And again, never, uh, never huffed ether. So I couldn't tell you <laughs> nope. if this is what it's actually like. But I love this description. And from, from what I, I mean, from what I know of Hunter S. Thompson, I'm pretty sure he did. So he probably wrote this from experience. Oh, devil ether. It makes you behave like the village drunkard in some early Irish novel. Total loss of all basic motor skills. Blurred vision, no balance, numb tongue. The mind recoils in horror, unable to communicate with the spinal column. Which is interesting because you can actually watch yourself behaving in this terrible way, but you can't control it. You know, and there was the case of like the what I was talking about with the audio, where they kept changing the pitch up and down in the in the kind of calliope music, and. The shot of it was a very static, um, low-angled shot. I guess not static, but it was low-angled, but it was wide. And just the way that they were moving through it, it really made you feel like off-kilter. 
Um, oh, I also say this one a lot, and Keith can probably attest to that. Is this not a reasonable place to park? Is this not a reasonable place to park? <laughs> oh, man. One that I always end up using, and like when somebody's like, no, nah, dude, just pull in there, dude. I, mean, I can't stop here. This is backcountry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, you know, it, it's what I use when it's like, no, I don't want to stop the car. You know, <laughs> no, we can't stop here. This is backcountry. Oh, and I didn't. Obviously, I couldn't capture this, but there's a moment in the movie where um, when they're at the DEA or the, the um, DA convention, and mm-hmm. there's this line, which is, A dope fiend refers to the reefer butt as a roach because it resembles a cockroach. <laughs> and then there's just the shot, and it's, it's Raul Duke, and he just looks at the camera. <laughs> and it kills me every single time I see it. I love that because it's just like, what? Are you kidding me? And they, they, it conveys so much without a single word from him. And I love stuff like that. Um, it, 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 yeah, it's definitely uh, somebody from within the scene looking at somebody <laughs> from outside the scene trying to get a grasp of what it all means yep. and why. It's like, no, no, you 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 don't get it unless you unless you show up. Yeah, basically. Um there was oh, okay. Uh Sven. So, he only has a few lines in the movie, but I just I like Christopher Maloney a lot um in so many things that I've seen him in, but he's so well known for Law and Order SVU where he plays it so straight-laced that this just throws people off if they've never seen him in anything else and he's just I say okay. And now I have that sound clip forever, and I can throw that in whenever I want. Um, just I say okay. Um, there was uh, there was this one where they're in the circus, and so when you were talking earlier about how um, you know they not only showed what it's like to go through the the drug trip, but then coming down off of it and coming out of it. And, yeah. Uh, there was this one. What? There's uh, two women a polar bear. Don't tell me those things. <laughs> it's like, no, no, you're still high. I'm coming down. You stop that right there. No more. No. You are uh, done. I love that one. Um, and then, you know, the movie ends with with Duke. Um, well, it doesn't end with, but he drops off Dr. Gonzo at the, at the airport. And uh, this, apparently, this line, from what I was reading, isn't in book i don't think i don't know aj maybe you can tell me um the the line at the I, end I'm, is, go, I'm already going to to politely say i don't remember because i know it's been a, about a decade okay. since i read the book so Fair enough. but I, I like the opening is very memorable and it, it feels like they just they hit that staccato of the writing mm-hmm. everything else just as happens with books that you read a while ago and, and remember you know, there's a familiarity, but I'm I'm not going to be able to say, oh gosh, I don't remember that scene, or yeah, so yeah. I will. There... Sorry. No, that's fine. That's fine. But I just I liked this because it does kind of sum up the character of Doctor Gonzo really well. There he goes, one of God's own prototypes, a high-powered mutant of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live, and too rare to die. And that, that, I mean, that sums it up. And I still, I can't like the character of Dr. Gonzo in this. He's just not a good person between, 
between the scene in the diner with the waitress and the way he treats her and the implications of what was going on with the Lucy character, um, which I will say that uh, the Cinefix video that I referenced earlier talked about that scene where uh, Lucy kind of attacks um, Raul Duke, you know, starts biting him like she's a dog. That scene in the book is very different because when he walks into the room and then Dr. Gonzo comes out of the bathroom in the book, he's stark naked. So a lot more well, I'm uncomfortable. I'm kind of glad I didn't have to see a chubby Benicio del Toro in the bath. Well, yes, I am too. But at the same time, it also <laughs> it also really alters kind of the, the feeling of that scene when you've got a girl who, you know, Christina Ricci at the time this was made was maybe 17 18 as an actress, and she's playing younger than that. Um, They never explicitly say in the movie how old she's supposed to be, but I think she's supposed to be like 15. So, you know, that makes what was already kind of a, you know, slightly uncomfortable scene way, way worse. Um, Oh, and then the conversation outside of the room afterwards just, yeah, Mm -hmm. drives it home with very little question. Yeah, that one definitely. The mind recoils in horror. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Um, yeah, no, I just overall, overall, I enjoy this movie. Now, you neither one of you had seen the movie before this, right? Not that I recall. Okay, not sober. <laughs> well, that I counts. I've seen the movie. I don't. I this is the first time I can recall anything from the last fifteen minutes of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I, so. That works. I mean, you basically haven't seen it all the way through. Uh, similar to, to me with Dark Crystal, where I, I've seen it. I know I, I had seen it, but I could not recall parts of it. Like It was right. like watching it for the first time, and AJ hadn't, but he'd read the book. So, um, Well, what I want to do now is um, I have uh, I want to ask AJ first. First time okay. seeing it. So your first time watching the movie, you'd read the book, so you have a vague idea of what was going on, but what did you think mm-hmm. of it as a film? I, I thought it was great. It was wonderful. Uh, it was well done. I can easily see how you need to be in the right mindset to enjoy the film. This isn't one that you would probably enjoy if you'd picked up off of you know, like the the rental shelf, or had stumbled across on Netflix, it might come across as a little jarring, <laughs> not knowing what you were getting into. Knowing what I was going into, I thought it was just wonderful. Though I doubt I will sit down and watch it next week again. I, <laughs> I you know, um, so yeah, I I think that it it is very memorable, and they really. They adapted a book better than any other I can think of. That just, it really feels like they 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 captured it. That that insanity. And I, I don't know how else to say that, so. No, that's a good way to put it. Um, all right, so Keith, having not read the book and having a vague memories of parts of the movie, but sitting down and actually watching it all the way through and, you know, totally in your right mind, what did you think of it as a movie? First off, that is a very polite way of saying that. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I, it, like I said, it was a hard watch, but you know, I, I went through it, and it, it just kind of, I was there, and <laughs> I was, it, it was hard to watch. I'm kind of rambling here. No, okay. that's fine. Um, it is. It kind of, it kind of uh, leaves you with a sense of shell shock a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, you I know, can see that. coming back to something that you. 
you know you've seen it, but you can't really, you know, form a dis, you know, uh, a cohesive memory of it, and then watching it and then realizing why you can't form a cohesive memory of it because the thing doesn't have a cohesive memory of itself. It's a very um, good point. I mean, it's not a, it's not your customary narrative film at all, and no. nor is it, from what I understand, a customary narrative book. But I think things like this do have a place and do have a purpose um, to really kind of. I'm, it's more of a slice yeah, of I, life. I, I, of I can't in good conscience say that this is a bad movie. I won't say that. I'm just saying it's it's a rough movie mm-hmm. if you're not prepared for it. It's and definitely. This time it's rough. It, I don't think I was really prepared for it coming <laughs> into it this time. So I, I think the the word I would use is raw. Like mm-hmm. the it, they went to capture something, and I think they did. And that isn't being filtered. Uh, neither was Hunter's, you know, Hunter S. Thompson's writing, and and they didn't change that. It it was insanity, and they captured it, and it's there. And I think most people are used to, especially with something based off of a book, um, filtering, softening, uh, adjusting, and you know they just managed to take what was on one medium and get it on another with what I think is recall at least is like a lot of accuracy. Um, and I think raw is the word I would use for it, which is probably why people might find it shocking, jarring. Some people might even hate it. Yeah. Um, no, one, I can... one, good, one thing that I, that I did appreciate about this movie was that it constantly felt like there were no pulled punches. Yeah. You know, as far, you know, me- metaphorically speaking, mm-hmm. um, it just, you, you you watched it, and this is what you felt was meant to be conveyed in the first place. I definitely, yeah. yep, I can get that. I mean, it, you know, it's based on a, a novel by a gonzo journalist. And gonzo journalism, uh, you know, it's a style of journalism that doesn't have any claims of objectivity. And it's, you know, centering around a reporter. And in in this case, it's, you know, centering around Hunter S. Thompson. He's injecting himself into whatever it is he's doing. Um it's it's like I said, semi autobiographical, um, but not you know a hundred percent. Who knows how much of it really happened and didn't happen, um, or how much of it you know. Probably no, he never got out of his bathtub in L.A. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard to say, but I mean, it's raw is probably the best word to use to describe not only the the type of story that Hunter S. Thompson would write, but the type of movie that this was, and which is you know again why I think. Terry Gilliam was perfect to do this because he set out with a goal in mind to, I'm going to make a movie that some people are going to think is the greatest thing ever. And a lot of people are going to hate. And that's what I want. I want that, that division. I don't want to make a movie. Terry Gilliam has never been one to make movies that are for people to, you know, for everyone to enjoy. He makes the movie that he wants to make, which is why his stuff, you know, doesn't do great financially. And it gets harder and harder for him to make some of his movies. I mean, The Brothers Grimm was the most commercially accessible film I can think of that he did. And it's still way out there. But you look at some of his other stuff. I mean, 12 Monkeys, The Fisher King, Brazil, these are not easily accessible movies. So to have a mind like that come into and try to adapt Hunter S. Thompson, and then you bring in, you know, somebody like a Johnny Depp. Who and this is you know this is Johnny Depp in '98. This is pre Captain Jack Sparrow. This is uh, you know not early in his career, but certainly um, 
not the Johnny Depp that he would become. And he's never one to um, kind of shy away from taking a risk in terms of a character that he would create and work on. Um, you know, he's he's done very, very different types of characters. Now, some people can say, well, yeah, but I mean, you know, then he does all the Tim Burton movies. Well, yes, but even if you look at those, a lot of those characters are very odd and very different. <laughs> um, you You're know, understating. Well, there's the, you know, the famous story that he, he lobbied to have lines removed from the script of Edward Scissorhands for his character. Um, you know, can you think of an actor that would do that? You know, he... Uh, <laughs> Some of it, you know, he he has a lot of swings and misses, um, but he definitely goes all for it when he does a movie, and I I appreciate and respect that, and t- Del Toro does too, and putting those two together to play these pretty unlikable characters, and giving the charisma that they did and they had, uh, I think goes a long way, and it makes for what is uh, a rough movie to watch. But I think if you can come out of it on the other side, it's really good. Um, and Dr. Gonzo was definitely an unlikable character, but I can't honestly say that Duke Raul was an unlikable character. Oh, Raul Duke? Yeah, no, he, I mean, yeah. He he has definitely a lot more to like about moments, him. But, yeah, he's, I, I, he's not like somebody that you just, you know, stay away from, you know, while they're messed up. It's... You know, it's like you, you gotta you gotta kind of feel them out, see where they're at, and then you can decide whether or not this is somebody you can be around when they're high. Yeah. Whereas, <laughs> like Doctor Gonzo, you're just giving him a wide berth all the time. Like you, you yeah. don't want to you don't want to be close to that guy. No, I can see that. I like I say, I I enjoy this movie. I like it, you know, quite a bit. But I can see where people don't. So I can understand why it was a little rougher to watch. And I think too, some of that comes from like you were saying. You're 36 now, you know. You've got a you've got a regular nine to five job. You've got a kid, you yeah. know. Whereas younger version of you probably gets all up into this just because it's just <laughs> crazy and out there and, and nuts. But now you look at the world differently than you did back then. I want to think that I could have enjoyed this movie the same if I saw it for the first time today as I did, you know, in my early 20s. But I definitely can tell you that I'm a different person now than I was then. And so I probably would be looking at it quite a bit differently. Um, but unlike when we talked about, you know, Fight Club way back when was an episode where I could definitely say that if I saw the movie today for the first time, it wouldn't have the same impact on me that it did when I saw it at 17. This movie I don't think would have the same impact, but I think I still could enjoy it because of kind of that whole where I was saying you kind of see beyond what's, what's really being shown to you and try to, to dig through deeper meanings. So maybe it's because I've seen it many times. Uh, and I do think that it, it if if you feel as though it's not too rough, you can watch it multiple times and you can start to peel back some of the layers and start to get a little bit more out of it. So, um, well, I do want to say thank you to you guys for uh, joining me this week. This was a, another fun one for me to do. Um, I, I like kind of I like exposing people to new movies and this is very this one's pretty different from some of the other ones that we've done um it's obviously not a family movie um <laughs> yeah. you know no like a week ago we're watching the dark crystal and you're showing that to your your son for the first time and he's loving it and now we flip 180 now I'm degrees. watching a movie I don't even want to turn on with my son in in the apartment because <laughs> I don't want him stumbling out there being like dad <laughs> what's going on 
you know, and, and like like a four year old is want to do when they wake up in the middle of the night. Oh yeah. How do you explain that to a kid? You <laughs> don't. How, how well, do you I... how do you explain it? <laughs> I think four certainly is early to have that sit down talk with a child <laughs> about what acid is and when it's appropriate to use it. This is true. You know, I would have just uh, I would have just gone ahead and said, "Yeah, this is somebody having a nightmare, bud." <laughs> this is what exactly nightmares what look like. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, it is a two hour nightmare. That is for sure. <laughs> but you know, I look on the whole, I recommend this movie to people if you. I, but I don't recommend it to everyone. Uh, I do, I do think you have to have the right mentality and the right mindset. You know, I certainly know plenty. Of, there's plenty of people I know that just aren't going to get this movie, and there's no point in them sitting down and, and spending two hours watching it. But that's Terry Gilliam. I mean, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen or Brazil. Those are oddball movies. So they're they're odd in a different way from this, um, but uh, they're really really good. I just think Terry Gilliam is. He's an acquired taste, to say the least. But um, no, again, I want to I want to thank you guys for joining me. Um, you know, one thing um, that I'm trying to do with this show is I just want to I want to expose people to new movies and new forms of enter, uh, of entertainment that maybe is outside of their comfort zone and is something that you wouldn't seek out and watch without it being recommended to you. Um, so I appreciate when you guys kind of take a step. And uh, and watch something that I mean I got David to watch Alien for crying out loud. And that, you know, he <laughs> he doesn't like horror movies, but I got him to watch one of the seminal horror movies of the last thirty five years, forty years. Yeah. So I appreciate you guys doing that, and it's great. Um, now, real quick, uh, you know, we do this show once a week. Uh, we put shows out uh, every Saturday, and uh, you can find us tvstravis dot com is the easiest way to find it. But we are on iTunes. Um, we are on Google Podcasts. If you can get onto those platforms, give us a review. Go to go to iTunes and review the, the podcast. It helps us out a ton. Um, go to tvstravis.com, and there's a link to go to iTunes right from there. There's a link to go to Google Podcasts. There's the link to subscribe and whatever your favorite podcast player is. Um, give us a, give us a review. Give us some you know some comments on the site. Uh, tell us a movie maybe you want to hear us talk about. Um, I would love that. Uh, I am on Twitter as tvstravis. Um, so I post my ramblings and my rantings, but also I talk about what movie we're going to be watching, maybe when I'm watching the movie for that week, um, you know, things like that. So definitely, you know, follow me there, uh, if you want to know anything else about the show or again, suggestions and ideas. Um, so before we get out of here, I do want to thank Keith for being on this week. You're welcome. Glad to be here. And, uh, and AJ, I want to thank you for being here as well. Glad to be here as always. All right. Uh, next week, our movie is Miami Vice, um, and that is the the movie with the movie version with Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx. Uh, I have not seen this before, so this is going to be my first viewing of Miami Vice, um, and I do have I have some vague memories of the show, um, you know, back in the eighties. So this is going to be an interesting one for me. But um, you know, until next week. I do want to say that uh, you should enjoy your movies, so get out there and watch them.
Listen, let's get down to brass tacks here. How much for the eight? 